EMS1.com is the number one online resource for the EMS community and authoritative voice in pre-hospital care. Our members enjoy access to exclusive content from top EMS educators and physicians, award-winning e-newsletters, original video series, member-only product discounts, access to free continuing education courses, and much more. If you're an EMS and not a member of EMS1, join the community for free today. Just go to ems1.com backslash registration. That's ems1.com backslash registration to become a member. Well, ladies and gentlemen, once again, it's time to go inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Savalero, and it's a very exciting day. And this episode of the Inside EMS podcast is sponsored by Pulsera. Learn more about how you can build a regional system of care for free at www.pulsera.com slash EMS. I got to tell you, I think we got a really great show today. But before we get started, before I can even give you some knowledge, some education, I got to bring in the other guy. My good friend, Kelly Grayson. KG, what's going on? Oh, man, it's, it's usual. I'm just living the dream. Yeah, but what is that dream? I, I'm a little bit worried about well, that. Well, sometimes it's a nightmare. Sometimes, okay. sometimes it's, a, it's a taco and beer-fueled uh, surreal nightmare. But uh, other, other times, it's, it's pretty pleasant. So basically, there's a range of dream. It's not like the best dream right. where, where you're living That's in a right. twenty room mansion and you've got all the beanbag chairs and and you know all Cheetos, the Cheetos and, exactly. and, and endless supply of Shinerbach. Yeah, is are, are Cheetos your one of your favorite things? By the way, actually, no. I to to give you a peek behind the scenes. No, I don't eat Cheetos now. Cheese nips. If you give me my beanbag chair, my cheese nips, and and some Shinerbach, I'm in heaven. Okay. You know, one of the things that I've gone is I, I like those cheese puffs. You know, it used to be cheese doodles back in the day. But uh, anyway, I digress. But, you know, Kelly, I think we got a really great show. You did a really great article. And, you know, I want to commend you on it because I enjoy reading your articles sometimes more than I enjoy talking to you. I mean, you're more entertaining, I think, in print than you are face-to-face. I don't I don't know what that's about. <laughs> no, come on, man. I'm, I'm giving you a compliment anyway. It's so, a backhanded one, yeah. Oh, is it really? But you did a great article on how to read math. But anyway, I, I thought it would be really great to talk about it because when we think about NIBP, when we think about doing, you know, vital signs – you know, mean arterial pressure map is not something that we think about all the time. But before we get there, the, the reason that I think this ties into this show, Kelly, is I was reading on social media a couple weeks ago. Somebody posted being a new EMT that they wanted to get a stethoscope and they were asking what kind of stethoscope should they get for the for the best job that they need to do. And my comment back to them is, what do you want to do with it? If your job is just going to read vital signs, you know, why do you need a big, you know, uh, master cardiology stethoscope for? You know, I think when we see these EMS providers that are carrying this, you know, cardiology 2 and cardiology 3 and the master cardiology, and they're not using it to its advantage, I wanted to spend just a couple minutes before we transition into learn how to read map about, you know, really the power of this tool that we have within the stethoscope that we carry that we're not really utilizing to the best of our advantage. And I'd like to know your thoughts about it. You know, it's, it's interesting that we're talking about using the right stethoscope in EMS, where in, in the rest of healthcare, uh, there's a sense that the stethoscope is becoming an obsolete instrument. 
You know, that there's uh, in, uh, physicians, especially in emergency departments, uh, you know, that there's there's very little they can listen to with their stethoscope that they can't obtain more accurately using another diagnostic method. It's been relegated to that that physician uh, talisman, if you will. But uh, in EMS, in the austere conditions that we work in, being able to auscultate things and, and hear them correctly uh, is still essential. And yeah, you need a good stethoscope to do your job. Unfortunately, what's included in the diagnostic equipment on ambulances is, is usually not a good stethoscope. It's it's the Fisher-Price, my first stethoscope, but it's not something that you really want to use uh, if accuracy and sound quality is, is important to you. So yeah, I think every EMT ought to buy uh, their own stethoscope uh, and spend some money doing it rather than buy the the holster with the uh, with the the Raptor trauma shears and the window punch and and uh, the glove pouch and pocket uh, and, and stock up your Batman utility belt. Save all that money and and spend a hundred dollars buying a, a good quality stethoscope that will last you pretty much a career. But I think the thing that you you have to if you're going to invest that type of money, Kelly. I'm not advocating to invest that money unless you're going to use the stethoscope for what it was meant to do. You know, one of the things that I always taught the EMTs and paramedics that were in class with me was I want you to listen to everybody's heart sounds and I want you to listen to everybody's lung sounds. I want you to learn what normal is. I mean, so even if it's a knee pain, listen to their lung sounds, listen to their heart sounds. Even if it's an arm pain, listen to their heart sounds, listen to their lung sounds. Learn what normal is. I remember when my daughter was born, you know, she would lay on my chest and she would fall asleep. I would take my stethoscope and I would put it on her back and I would listen to her lungs. And I would listen to her heart and I would listen to the valves and I would picture the valves opening and closing because it really, it gave me the opportunity to kind of hone those skills. But the reason I say listen to everybody's heart and everybody's lung sounds is because learn what normal is. And then when you hear something that's not normal, you're able to go into the hospital and say, hey, doc, you know, I'm listening to their lung sounds and something doesn't sound right. What is that? Now you've just taught yourself what ronchi sounds like. Now you've just taught yourself what, you know, crackles sound like. And even if you're an EMT, paramedics, give your EMTs the opportunity, if they're in the back with you, to listen to those heart sounds, to listen to those lung sounds, to give them the opportunity to get some experience on what they sound like. So learn what normal is. As you hear abnormal, Go ahead and ask the doctor what it is, and now you're teaching yourself what those sounds are. But if you're going to spend the money, if you're going to buy a master cardiology, learn how to listen to the heart sounds. Learn how to listen to the lung sounds. Because they tell you so much. As a paramedic, if you hear, an, you know, if you hear the normal S1 and S2, and now all of a sudden you're hearing the S3 gallop, if they're not in congestive heart failure, they will be soon. So now you're giving yeah. yourself an opportunity to, to kind of think about, and I'm going to use that ugly word, Kelly, diagnose. Sometimes you <laughs> could diagnose the fact of, hey, wait a minute, maybe they have congestive heart failure. You know, one of the things that doctors do is they kind of listen to the chief complaint. They kind of find out what the signs and symptoms are. Then they start to use their diagnostic skills to back themselves into a condition. Then they use the lab values to kind of finalize what they think is going on with the patient. Mm -hmm. But Kelly, I got to say that we think about a stethoscope, it's just not a benign piece of equipment. It has a lot yeah. of power in what we're doing in the back of that box. 
Well, not only does it is does it have diagnostic value, but but it does have. Uh, I, I spoke of it earlier as a talisman, and and you'll see that when you see a physician using his stethoscope, and and one of the first things they're doing while they're talking to the patient, "Hi, I'm Doctor uh, Marcus Welby, MD," and and uh, uh, and they'll talk to him and, and and start to get a bit of a history, and then they segue into that physical exam thing, and that that's kind of like a uh, 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 easing them into the healing touch and and gives the the patient the unspoken impression that you you care about their welfare and you're and you're uh, and you're concerned for them um, <clears throat> and that you're on the job you know and I I've watched patients just kind of visibly relax when the doctor was was listening to their chest but you know the and you mentioned that. You shouldn't use a stethoscope or shouldn't buy an expensive stethoscope unless you're going to use it for everything that it it, uh, it can be used for. And, and that's true. We, sh- we do a poor job of, of auscultating heart tones in EMS uh, for certain. Uh, you don't have to be excellent at auscultating heart tones. But as you mentioned, if you can if you can uh, catch that S3 gallop when it occurs, uh, that that third heart sound, lub-dub-D, um, then that's one of the cardinal signs of, of congestive heart failure. And, and it can be the, the kind of thing that, that censures your diagnosis a little bit and, and guides your treatment. Um, but no matter what stethoscope you use or, or choose, they do two things that you really want in a stethoscope. You want one that has good acoustic quality and you want one that cancels out ambient noise as, as best as you can. Uh, since we, operate in high noise environments. That's extremely important. So pick a stethoscope that has thick walled tubing. Um, pick a stethoscope that has a sensitive diaphragm or even better, use one of those disposable antimicrobial diaphragms that really ramp up the acoustic sensitivity of your stethoscope. You have to you have to get used to using a lighter touch and a lighter hand when auscultating, but you wouldn't believe the difference between taking off your your, your simple stock diaphragm and just stretching a piece of rubber uh, across the chill ring of your stethoscope, uh, which is basically what those those antimicrobial disposable diaphragms are, uh, and how much more sensitive your stethoscope becomes. But those two things, the ability to cancel out ambient noise and the ability to be able to hear what you need to hear very clearly is is the mark of a good stethoscope, no matter what brand name it carries. And one of the things before we transition into this, you know, uh, into your article discussion about mean arterial pressure mm-hmm. is don't forget that after you conduct patient care, you need to really clean this stethoscope well. And that's oh, that's what, the nastiest thing in the, on an ambulance. Well, I think if you're handing a pen off to somebody, I think that could be the nastiest yeah, thing. Yeah, that too. But that I, too. Don't see, I don't see EMTs and paramedics cleaning their stethoscope as often as they need to and often as they need to means after every single call because you're you're using that stethoscope on that patient you're putting it back around your neck but it's one of the things that you really need to make sure that you're getting cleaned well before we transition into your article about mean arterial pressure kelly we're really excited here at inside ems that we're now sponsored by pulsera and pulsera provides a real-time communication network across entire regions and it's free to ems The Pulsera platform, built on the power of mobile technology, unites the right clinicians at the right time for the right patient, providing transparency and streamlined communication. Simply create a dedicated patient channel, 
build the team, and communicate using audio, video, instant messaging, data images, and key benchmarks. Any patient, any condition, every time. Oh, and did we mention that it's free to EMS? For more information, visit pulsera.com slash EMS. That's P-U-L-S-A-R-A dot com slash EMS. So, Kelly, you know, I, I, you know, I was kind of joking with you in the beginning of the show and, you know, saying that you were more entertaining in print than you were. But I got to tell you, I truly enjoy your articles. You know, I think they make you laugh. I think they make you think. You know, I think they, they draw you into wanting to read the article almost to see what you're going to say next. So I, I really enjoy your style of writing. But I, I guess I want to ask you, what was the what was the catalyst for you to write this? I mean, this is really kind of an obscure article to kind of put out mean arterial pressure. What was the catalyst for you writing it? It was one of the, the almost semi-annual re, republishing or reposting of one of my old articles on, on tips and tricks to read a blood pressure in the back of an ambulance. And and uh, EMS1 reprints that regularly in, in social media. It always gets a bunch of comments, and, and some of the comments are worth more than others. But uh, it, it never fails to generate interest because, surprisingly, so many people still struggle at hearing a blood pressure in a moving ambulance. Uh, me being one of them, which is why a good stethoscope is essential for me. But you you always hear these people, and, and the other side of that coin is the constant refrain from some people that you treat the patient, not the monitor, and, and never trust an NIBP reading. You know, those things are inaccurate. The manufacturer even says so. That's why you use your ears, and you don't use that machine. You use your ears to, to auscultate a BP. That's the only way to go, and that's just horse manure. <laughs> I'm not saying that the NIBP machines are accurate. As a matter of fact, they are inaccurate, extremely inaccurate at either end of the scale. Uh, if your patient's blood pressure is normal, well, it'll give you a normal blood pressure, but that's not when you really need to know what the blood pressure is. Um, you need to know uh, an accurate blood pressure when it's on either end of the extremes. But And these uh, these people will, will say that you can't trust NIBP machines, therefore you should auscultate a blood pressure, but... Uh, I don't know that our ears are any more accurate than the NIBP machine, you know, because I wrote that article and there was a similar article by Mike McAvoy uh, on EMS one on, on, you know, uh, things that cause you to get inaccurate blood pressures in the field. It's a, a constant refrain in EMS that we, we have problems getting blood pressures accurately. Yeah, but I so, think but I think one of the challenges though is when we talk about NIBP in the back of an ambulance, we are talking about machine movement, we are talking about patient movement, and we can see up yep. to a 10 tour difference in an NIBP pressure and an auscultated pressure. So I think that we really have to, you know, is NIBP the way to go? It is, but until someone is able to show that we are being really accurate, I gotta tell you, I mean, 10 tour, a 10 millimeters of mercury difference. Is, is is a lot when you start to think about treatment of a patient. Yeah, but all those things you just mentioned also affect the quality of our auscultative blood pressures as well. Patient movement, road noise, uh, our movement, the, the, the rubbing of uh, blood pressure cuff uh, hoses against the, the bell of your stethoscope. All of those things affect the quality of our auscultation as well. So it's not like we're, we're auscultating in a vacuum and then... Um, uh, doing an NIBP reading in the middle of a hurricane. Uh, it, it's, it's roughly equal ground. 
So I don't, I really don't know that, that auscultative blood pressures in and of themselves are any more accurate in an EMS setting than the NIBP, uh, or more properly, they're probably just as inaccurate and, and unpredictable. Go ahead and explain to the audience exactly what mean arterial pressure is and why it's important when they're taking vital sure. signs. Yeah. Well, as it turns out, this, this podcast is, is turning out to be a love song to Mike McAvoy because this is something else I learned from one of Mike's uh, PowerPoint uh, lectures uh, on fluid therapy was that mean arterial pressure as measured by NIBP machines is by far the more accurate reading. Um, normally, we derive mean arterial pressure when we auscultate a blood pressure. We derive it mathematically. We listen to Karotkov sounds and we get our systolic and our diastolic blood pressure. And then we apply the, the, the tested and true mean arterial pressure formula to mathematically derive a mean arterial pressure. And generally, uh, most sources say that you, you need to maintain a mean arterial pressure of 65 or so to, to maintain vital organ perfusion. However, NIBP machines do it exactly the opposite. What they do is they directly measure the mean arterial pressure and mathematically derive when uh, using the, the oscillations uh, read when they're obtaining MAP and comparing it to heart rate, they mathematically derive a systolic and diastolic blood pressure from it. But the problem is they've been known to overestimate systolic blood pressure by as much as 20% when the patient is significantly hypotensive. Uh, but in one of Mike's articles, he studied, cited a study where they did something close to 20,000 simultaneous NIBP and arterial line uh, blood pressure measurements uh, on several thousand patients and discovered that the NIBP machine significantly and consistently overestimated systolic blood pressure uh, when compared to arterial lines, but the mean arterial pressures measured by both methods were almost identical. And, and so when you use your NIBP machine in the field, the really accurate number that you can hang your hat on is that number in parentheses uh, printed next to your blood pressure, the mean arterial pressure. So that's what I've been teaching my students lately is if you use an NIBP machine, don't pay so much attention to systolic blood pressure, pay attention to the mean arterial pressure. And, and you know, clinically, we're starting to key much of our treatment to mean arterial pressure rather than systolic pressure. You've heard us say, you know, uh, you know, maintain a, a systolic blood pressure of 90 or better or, or this or that. And now people are shifting to say, uh, we, we need a mean arterial pressure of 65 or in some of the, uh, the resuscitation that's doing trauma resuscitation, they're okay with the mean arterial pressure as low as 50 when they're doing damage control trauma resuscitation, albeit for a, a very short period of time. So that's what I've been preaching is that uh, the mean arterial pressure is a reliable finding in your NIBP machines. And when it comes to managing hypotension and managing vital organ perfusion, that's the number we ought to be paying more attention to in the first place. So that's how the article came about. Plus, I, I combined it with uh, several of my other articles and some more information from Mike in that, in that lecture on how to predict fluid responsiveness uh, in, your, in your hypotensive patients. About half the patients that we administer fluids to uh, to try to, to resuscitate them and prop up their blood pressure. Half of those patients cannot physiologically respond to the fluid that we're giving them. 
So the, the matter then becomes, how do you predict which patients are going to respond to fluids and which patients need to, to move straight to vasopressors to manage their, their perfusion? And one trick that he pointed out in, in his uh, uh, lecture was using uh, waveform capnography and a passive leg raise to uh, gauge fluid responsiveness. Simply put, uh, you measure a trend capnograph. You have to go back in the settings and print a trend capnograph, but you lay the patient flat on their back, do a passive leg raise to 45 degrees for 30 seconds or 45 seconds or so, and then look and see if your CO2 readings came up during that passive leg raise. And if they did, then that's a good indication that your patient is centrally hypovolemic and could therefore uh, benefit from some fluid resuscitation. And in the, uh, another article that, that Jeff Poland inspired uh, some years back, oscillations in your plethysmograph waveform will tell you the same thing. If you notice that the, the, the amplitude and the width of your pleth waveform oscillating back and forth uh, in time with the patient's breathing, uh, that's a good sign that, that they are centrally hypovolemic and could benefit from a little fluid therapy. So that, in combination with MAP, actually gives us a, a, a much better picture of what the patient's uh, central perfusion is like and how to manage it accordingly. Well, that certainly is a mouthful, but, you know, I think you laid that. <laughs> well, don't, don't ask me a technical question, Civilero, unless you're ready for a 15-minute response. I mean, I, mean, I was like, I was, I was nodding off over here. Uh, but I think that that was a great overview, and I think that really you made it as simple as it could be for an understanding as to, you know, why this is important when it comes to patient care. And again, it's things that we don't understand. I mean, you know, there we have to be able to know, you know, what the mean arterial pressure is. We need to know what the pulse pressure is. And, you know, it's, it's an important factor. And if you're going to have the tools, we need to be able to understand how we're going to use them. Now, you know, when we're in paramedic school, when we're in EMT school, they throw all this information at us, and we think that we come out of school and we should have all the answers as to what it is to be a great paramedic. But one of the things that you need to think about is that as you go through your career, the, the education doesn't need to stop because you don't know everything. I don't know everything. Kelly doesn't know everything. So you've got to be able now to think about a system, respiratory, those types of things, and pick something every month. And try to learn something new every month that, you know, relates to your skills as being a good quality clinician or a good quality practitioner. These are things that we need to start to think about. You know, we, we're worrying about this, that paramedics need a degree. Okay, that's fine. Let's, let's learn some literature. Let's learn sociology. Let's learn psychology. But we still have to be able to hone our skills to become a solid clinician. And that's mm -hmm. what's important. And that education needs to happen every day. Yes, indeed. You know, and I, I sometimes think, and I've said in this podcast before that, that half of what's taught in paramedic school is wrong. Uh, the problem is nobody knows which half. Uh, and that's true across all medical specialties. But uh, I often think that the the best lesson I learned in my initial paramedic education from Randall Howard and Ray Ezell and David Coco at Monroe Fire Department was um, that things are going to change. What we teach you in this class is going to change and embrace that change because uh, some of the most important things you'll learn will be outside of this classroom. And looking back at my career, probably the balance of the most useful information 
I, I ever learned was outside of my paramedic classroom. And it, and it holds true today. We're talking about mean arterial pressure and how to use it to to better gauge a patient's uh, perfusion uh, when correlating it with CO2 waveforms and pleth waveforms. Um, Ten years ago, I wouldn't have been thinking about that. And I certainly wasn't taught that in paramedic school. Uh, yet here I am 25 years into my career and and uh, I'm learning things from from guys like Jeff Poland and and Mike McAvoy and yourself and, and several others. And that's going to continue. And if you get to the point where you're not learning anything new in EMS and it's time to, to get out of it and move to a rewarding career in the fast food service industry. <laughs> but, um, uh, me, I still relish those chances uh, in the discussion about MAP. Uh, for example, uh, there was a, a social media thread about MAP and, and my friend Stephen Hines, uh, a London Ambulance Service uh, paramedic supervisor, pointed out that uh, the reason we get it wrong so much is because the mean arterial pressure calculation is inherently inaccurate, especially uh, in extremes of heart rate when a patient's tachycardic and bradycardic doesn't uh, account for extremes of heart rate. And he pointed out a, uh, a couple of studies pointing out an alternative uh, way to calculate MAP. Uh, and it, it is more complex to, to uh, mathematically calculate this, but everyone carries a pocket computer on them now. Uh, and it's a simple matter of inputting those numbers. So I have homework to do after this podcast. I got to go read up on those studies and figure out uh, how to how to more accurately calculate mean arterial pressure than the formula that I've been taught for 25 years. But hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. Do you use MAP in your clinical practice? Email us your thoughts, concerns, comments, and questions at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Sabalero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We're going to catch you guys next week.